following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So Paul, as he begins the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And uh, that's the gospel. And and as we've been going through the book of Romans, the first eight chapters, Paul has uh, very carefully laid out uh, what this gospel is and why it is the power of God for salvation. Um, we get to the end of chapter 8, and uh, you know chapter 8 is really one of the great uh, chapters of the Bible. And if you, if you read through the Bible, if you read through Romans, you know you get to the end of chapter 8 and you're just ecstatic. Praise God, I'm a child, I'm adopted, I have new life, I have no condemnation, there's nothing they can get in my way, uh, my salvation is guaranteed, it's just... So up, and you are on a huge mountaintop. And then you come to chapter 9. And it's like you go from the beauty of the mountains to the most desolate desert. And you go, man, what is with chapter 9, 10, and 11 of Romans? Um, And it is a shift. And as we shift into those chapters, you may be thinking, oh, chapters 9, 10, 11. I don't understand them. I don't want to understand them. They just make no sense to me. Um, but it ties back to what Paul says actually in the first verse of in the first verses of chapter one, where he says the gospel is the power of God to those who believe to the Jew first, and then to the Greeks to the Gentiles. Uh, all this time he's been explaining what the gospel is, but now he's got to come back to a very serious and important question, and the question is what about the Jews? The gospel is to be the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, but the truth is. And Paul could testify to this from much first-hand personal, personal experience. The Jews, by and large, were not receiving the gospel. In fact, they were quite aggressively rejecting it. And Paul had been at the other end of that rejection, right? He had been beaten, he had been stoned, he had been kicked out of cities, he had been chased. Uh, he had uh, been beaten and suffered greatly because the Jews were rejecting the gospel. And so we come to chapter 9, and, uh, and Paul's got to deal now with some important questions about uh, God, the gospel, and God's chosen people, and uh, what happens to them now, right? So we're going to look at the first five verses, which really introduce this whole topic, and then over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at chapters 9, 10, and 11, and really trying to understand um, something of God's character, something of his promises, and something of his truth about the gospel in relationship to Israel. Uh, let me read through these verses, uh, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ." For the sake of my brothers and kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Um, Paul introduces and starts off this, this, uh, this section uh, really bearing a little bit of his own grief and heart for Israel. And uh, it's a rare glimpse uh, into the deepest emotions that Paul can express about his feelings about these, these uh, kinsmen of his who had persecuted him so severely. And he really talks about his heart for them, his compassion for them. Uh, And it speaks a lot about our heart for the lost. I call it uh, a heart for the lost. Uh, And he starts off in in these verses really speaking about his great grief and anguish about Israel. And uh, he starts off in verse 1, uh, he, he shares this anguish of soul that he has, his anguish for the lost. And he, he goes to great lengths to explain that he's telling the truth. And, and if you look at verse 1, it sounds kind of strange, uh, and it's kind of over the top. He says, I'm speaking the truth, I am not lying. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. The Holy Spirit bears witness. Okay, so get the picture. He's, he's lining up every powerful person he knows. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, his own conscience. He says, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth. He, he wants to make it very clear that he is genuine and sincere about what he is about to express. This is not just some trivial thing, it's not some trite matter. This is honestly the deep condition of his heart. And he wants to know he's not making this up. This is not just something... He's thrown out there casually or flippantly. He's serious about this. He says, God himself, Jesus, can testify. The Holy Spirit can testify the accuracy of what I'm about to say. And what does he say? Well, he says, basically, he says, I am grief-stricken over Israel. Uh, he uses two words here. Both words could be translated grief in different forms. And it's the idea of a heart sickness over serious loss. Right? We've, if we've ever lost a loved one, we know the pain and heart sickness that comes with serious loss, right? That gut-wrenching feeling of agony inside when, when we realize we have lost someone and we will never see them again. And Paul describes Israel in those terms. He says, I am heart sick. I am in the depths of grief and anguish. And to, if, that's, if those words aren't powerful enough, he adds the word constantly, right? I am constantly feeling this agony of heart over the loss of Israel. Right? Uh, he, he is moved deeply by his fellow Jews. Um, and, and, and if that's not enough, he takes it one step further and he says, he explains really why he feels this way about Israel. And he goes on and he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Uh, if you get what Paul is saying here, it's, a, it's an astonishing statement. And this is basically what he's saying. He says, look, I wish that I could give my life, and not just give my life in this earth, but he says, I wish I could give my life for eternity and find myself in a place where I was cut off from Christ for all eternity, and I would take upon myself the judgment and condemnation that, that's right now hanging over Israel so that it would fall on me and my brother's would find life in Christ. Right? Now, how many of us would say that about lost people, right? How many of us would take that step 
God, I would go to hell for my lost friends. You send me to hell, you put your righteousness on them, I'll stand in their place. Of course, uh, Paul can't do that. He's not Jesus, right? But that's how he feels, that's how strongly he feels about this. Well, why does he feel so strongly? Why, why is he taking such, going to such desperate means and feeling such huge anguish? Well, it is because he's come to the realization at this point in his life and ministry that Israel as a whole, not, not, not speaking of individuals, but as a whole, as a nation, as a people group, they're not going to get saved. Right? They have rejected the gospel and turned away from Christ. And Paul realizes that their rejection is serious, is in some senses final and ultimate. And so for that, he feels tremendous grief and sorrow and sadness and uh, wishes there's something he could do to intervene. Uh, and it kind of gives, a, a, um, it gives us a picture of why Paul went to such great lengths and such great extent to evangelize the Jews, uh, his countrymen. You get a picture of his heart, right? Here's a guy who uh, repeatedly would go into the synagogues, would go before the Jewish leaders and rulers, and he would proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would tell them, your law, circumcision, the law, all your temple worship cannot save you. It's not enough. You need Jesus, who's the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He alone can bring you the eternal life and forgiveness that you seek. Right? And every time what happens? Bad things. Right? Bad things. They stone him, they beat him, they pulverize him. Uh, he says, I think, four or five times he was, he was uh, one stroke short of 40 lashes, right? Brutal beatings, brutal, right? Uh, for me, all it would take was once. You beat me once, I'm not going back there. Okay, I'm done. You're on your own. But not Paul, right? He says, look, I would, I would take their place, such as my burden my passion for the salvation of Israel. Um, But Paul realizes that that Israel is not going to receive the gospel. We'll see in a minute why why he believes that and why he could feel that way, why their rejection was so final. He says, look, they are they are lost to salvation. They are lost to the gospel, right? Um, just a, a quick word of application here. Um, Paul is a great example here of, of what our burden should be for the lost, right? We should have that kind of passion and heart for lost people if we really believe the gospel, Right? If we really believe everything Paul has taught in chapters 1 through 8 of Romans, the implication of that is simply this, that without Christ, without receiving His work, without accepting by faith His work on the cross for salvation, you are doomed to eternal judgment and and damnation. Uh, And that's why Paul was so desperate for his, his fellow beloved Israelites. Because the gospel says there is no other path. There's no second plan. There's no plan B. There's no backup. Right? Everything pointed to Christ. And if you reject Christ, there is no plan B. You cannot fall back on the law. You can't fall back on temple worship. 
Uh, this is it. And if we believe the gospel is true, if we believe it is the only way, if we believe Jesus is the way, then the, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by Him, then we ought to have that kind of passion for, for the lost. Uh, we ought to be burdened for those who do not understand or know the message of Christ. And we ought to be uh, pointing our life towards the proclamation of the good news. Good news simply means, you know, it's news, it is good. Uh, it's not simple enough. And news is something that's proclaimed, right? It is declared. Uh, and and if, if we believe the gospel, if we believe the good news, we should be passionate about declaring its message. Um, now, you may not be, uh, as, as I'm not, you may not be the evangelist Paul was, right? And you may go, you know, I, I just can't, I can't go out there and, you know, preach the gospel like that. I can't even maybe share like Paul did. Um, and that's okay. Uh, God gifted us all differently and, and uniquely. And I'm not saying here, I don't want you all to feel bad this morning that you're not an evangelist like Paul, that you're not all gifted and called like Paul. Uh, we're all called uniquely to different giftings and, and ministries. But all of those ministries and all the direction and focus that ought to be the gospel, ought to be proclaiming Christ to a lost and dying world. And while we may never have Paul's gifts or talents or calling, we should all have something of his heart for lost people. We should be praying for that kind of burden. Uh, we should be praying that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers like Stefan, right? And like many of other of you who are laborers in the fields, uh, sowing the seeds, reaping the harvest, right? Uh, we ought to all be laboring and working to come alongside those who are laborers, who are working in the fields, praying for them. We all, all ought to live that the primary goal of our life is to be salt and light. That we would be, by the very nature of how we live, we would be a witness to the world around us that Christ is real. As, John, as Jesus prayed in John 17, that, that we as the body of Christ would exercise such oneness together in unity uh, that they would see that unity and it would show the world that Christ indeed came from God and loved us. Jesus prayed for that. That's why it's important that we as a church live in oneness and unity. Right? All of that is focused on proclaiming the gospel and making him known. Um, and we need to have that kind of burden uh, for the lost. But, let me say this. We shouldn't have the exact feeling that Paul describes here. Right? We should be burdened. We should have a heavy heart. We should have a passion for the lost. However, we should not grieve for the lost like Paul does here for the Jews. Let me explain why. Paul goes on and he says this. He says, my, he's talking about his brothers, his kinsmen, fellow kinsmen. He says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, temple worship, and the promises. All right? What is he talking about there? What does this mean? Well, he's talking really about this great heritage of Israel. That uh, throughout the Old Testament, as we read it, Israel received this incredible heritage from God of all this stuff. And uh, what is all this stuff? Well, all this stuff is actually the ultimate movie trailer. Okay, You know what a movie trailer is? It's uh, a commercial or a preview of a movie, right? Do you ever wonder why they called it a trailer? I think that's kind of odd because they always show it at the beginning of a movie. So why is it called a trailer? Well, 
I'll tell you why, because I know you're just dying to know. Um, a trailer is a preview, an advertisement, a commercial for a feature film. The term trailer comes from they're having, uh, they're having originally been shown at the end of a feature film screening, right? So back in the old days, a long time ago, when they had movie trailers, it came at the end of the movie, when it was all done, they would show clips of upcoming movies. So thus it was called a trailer. But they learned real quick that nobody stayed around. When the movie was over, everybody left, right? So they got real smart, and they put the trailer at the beginning, so you got to endure the trailer to get to the movie, right? Genius, right? Well, very much the heritage of Israel is like a movie trailer. It is clips and bit and pieces of the grand feature film that is to come, right? And let's, let's look at this list because it is quite amazing uh, of this ultimate movie uh, trailer. And the whole point of a trailer is what? They, they show you these bits and these clips and pieces. They give you a glimpse of what's to come. Why? Because they want you to anticipate its release date, right? They want you to get excited and be eager about this new movie that's coming out so that you'll go to the movie theater three days in advance and stand in line and camp out there to buy a ticket to watch this movie, right? That's what they want. Well, that's exactly what Jesus or what God did for Israel in, in all this heritage, he gave them glimpses, he gave them little film clips, little pieces of the grand climax of history so that they would anticipate and look forward to this grand finale, the final film, the showing, so that when Jesus came, they would stand in line to buy the ticket to go watch the movie and participate in this grand climax of God's historical event of all time. Right? So what were these little movie clips? Well, he talks about, he says, you have received the adoption uh, interesting that Paul uses this term because it's not used at all in the Old Testament. Uh, but Paul uses that, and he's just got and using it in Romans. Uh, it pictures God as a father who wants to adopt his people as children. But as father, it also speaks of a God who is already a father, who has a child of his own, right? And it pictures uh, Jesus and the Father living together. And, of course, it's through Christ that this adoption into sonship is made possible. Uh, he talks about glory. He says, you have the adoption, you have glory. In the Old Testament, uh, the glory that was given to Israel specifically speaks of God's presence coming down in really quite radiant, spectacular glory and residing in the tabernacle or in the temple or in other scenes. It really pictured God in their midst. And uh, that's why the temple for them was such a big deal. It wasn't just because it was a cool building, but it was because the very glorious presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. The glory of God was there. And so Israel was, as a nation, a people in whom God was hanging out and His glory was in the middle of them. Right? But that was not the end. That was only a picture or a glimpse of something much greater. And the much greater thing was, of course, Jesus who... When he came, was born of a virgin, he was called what? Emmanuel. God with us. It is a picture of Jesus coming who would bring God into our midst, not just living in our neighborhood, but now through Christ, God could live in our hearts. He could be in, a, in the midst of our very being. A much greater picture that Jesus fulfilled far beyond what the temple uh, pictured. Uh, the covenants. And it's interesting, Paul uses the plural here, not just a covenant, but the covenants. And throughout the Old Testament, there were a number of covenants. 
And each covenant brought God closer and brought God into a deeper and more committed relationship with his chosen people. So the first covenant with Noah, remember that one? What does God promise? He says, oh, I'm not going to destroy you by flood anymore. Right? Not, not terribly personal, but very real. And a promise that God kept, and he sealed it or signed it by the rainbow. Right? So he says, I'm going to look up in the sky, and I'm going to see that sign of the covenant, and it's going to be, remind me, I can't destroy you by a flood. Uh, doesn't mean he can't destroy us by other means, but not by a universal flood. Um, then he goes on to the Abrahamic covenant where he promises to give them land and make them a nation and that they would bless the world. And then the Davidic covenant where God promises that he will establish an heir of David on David's throne who will reign and rule forever. Well, who is the ultimate supreme fulfillment of all these covenants? In fact, who creates a new covenant that exceeds and supersedes them all? Well, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is now written a new covenant, and instead of a rainbow that reminds God, I'm not going to destroy him, now God the Father looks at the cross, and, and that covenant is sealed by the blood of Christ. Uh, he promises that, uh, you know, that, that this offspring of Abraham would be a, a blessing to the world. Jesus was the one who, through Abraham, blessed the world by bringing his salvation. Jesus is the one who sits as the heir of David on David's throne, who will rule forever as the eternal sovereign king over all things. So all these things point to Jesus who would perfectly fulfill them. Um, The law, God's perfect standard of righteousness, which Paul's made it very clear in the book of Romans, nobody can live up to or accomplish. Uh, It was not given so that the Jews could do it and live by it and receive life by their own perfection or self-made righteousness. Uh, But he says, he just got done saying in Romans 8, 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in him. Been fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Right? So Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of the law. It all pointed to him who would be the righteous person who he alone would live out the requirements and meet all the requirements of the law. Uh, the worship. Uh, great word. The word here really doesn't really, it implies worship, but it's literally our service. And it was used primarily in the Old Testament to speak of service in the temple, temple service, which was in and of itself an act of worship. And it really pictures all that went on inside the temple and in this temple cult. Um, what does the temple point to? Everything in and about the temple. We don't have time to go through it. But everything in and about the temple, all of its, its structure, its building, how worship was done there, everything points to Jesus is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And of course, the, significant, the most significant picture is how Jesus uh, becomes the sacrifice, the Lamb of Atonement, who by His own blood goes into the Holy of Holies and makes atonement for us. As it says in Hebrews 9, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into that holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, securing an eternal redemption. Right, so, so here's the picture. Everything in the Old Testament, the promises, the pictures, the sacrifices, the instructions, everything is a movie trailer. It is a glimpse, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what the grand true thing would be when Jesus came to fulfill it. Right? And, and Paul runs through this list to, to highlight or to remind them of what God has given them uh, to prepare them for what? For the consummation of the gospel. For the actual coming of Christ. Um, why? Well, to build anticipation, to give them an eagerness to see it, so that when Jesus finally came, they would be first in line to buy the ticket to see this movie. It is the power of God, uh, the gospel is the power of God to salvation, first to the Jews. Well, why was it first to the Jews? Well, because they got this amazing preview of it. And they should have been chomping at the bit to stand in line going, this is it, this is everything that we understood points to this Reality, this coming of Christ. I get it now. And they should have been the first eager waiting in line uh, to buy the ticket, to see the movie, to be on board, to, to enter into life through the gospel. Uh, so you see the problem that Paul's setting up here, right? Um, what happens if those who the movie had been previewed to for 2,000 years, when it came down to it, and the movie shows... And you have the grand opening, and they don't buy a ticket. They're not interested, right? What are the implications of that for them? Well, the implications for Israel are devastating. Because Paul understood that, look, after 2,000 years of warning, of preview, of advance notice, when the day comes, if you're not on board with it, and you reject it then... Your rejection is final and ultimate. Right? For the Jews to reject what Jesus had done for them is not the same as the, as the unbelieving Gentiles who heard this message new for the first time. For them, it was a devastating ultimate rejection. And he ends this uh, with, in verse 5 by saying, To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham and the fathers. And from their race, according to the flesh is Christ, comes Christ, who is God over all. This is, this is one of the few, uh, perhaps the only time actually, in Paul's writings where he, he says flat out directly, Jesus is God. Now he implies it, he certainly teaches it, he certainly believes it, but it's the only time where Paul just flat out says, Jesus is God, right? And he's saying here that for Israel to come to this point in their history... To deny Jesus now is to ultimately deny God finally and permanently. And that's why Paul is grief-stricken for Israel. Right? And you see, it's different for us. Uh, when we have a burden for lost people, when we have a burden for people in Thailand who have never heard the gospel, uh, we go out and we share the good news with them. And for them, there was no preview. There's really no reason why they should be interested in this movie. Right? They've, they've never heard of it. Uh, last night, we were at a, at a wedding for uh, Daryl and Carrie's wedding. We were at the reception afterwards, and uh, 
we had assigned seating at our little tables, and so it was all of us white people, and it was a Carrie's tie, so her family's tie, and Daryl's American, so all, all these foreigners. And at our table, there was about, I don't know, eight or ten of us, all foreigners, all Americans, all missionaries, except for this one poor lady, Ba, ba Bua, this about 65-year-old Thai lady who got stuck at our table. Okay, that's torture. And so, and not only that, but they had assigned seating, so somebody had thought this through and sat poor Babua between Walter Ridgely and me. So here's this poor Thai lady stuck between two preachers, right? And if you know Walter, I don't think Walter's here this morning, you know him, he loves to share the story of Jesus, and so we're trying to make this poor lady feel a little more comfortable among this table of foreigners and talking with her and and uh, she wants to know, you know, am I a priest like the like a Buddhist monk? She's real curious about all this stuff. And so at, at one point, Walter asked her, uh, the, the wedding was kind of a mixed Catholic. I, I did part, but it was mostly a Catholic wedding at the Catholic church here in town. So in the, in the church is this ginormous crucifix of Jesus. It's like the biggest crucifix I've seen. I've seen some big ones. Huge Jesus hanging on a cross. And so Walter asked her, he says, do you understand why that, why Jesus was hanging up there on that cross? And she's going, no, I don't get that. And so he took about 15, 20 minutes and he explained to her from Genesis to the end who, why Jesus was hanging up on that cross, right? Now, as he's talking through this, I'm thinking, you know, there's a, there's a thousand things about this whole story that would be strange and difficult for her. The very fact that there's a creator who made the world who we're accountable to would be new information for her. Uh, the fact that, that sin is far deeper and more penetrating than she has any idea would be new information to her. That there could be a sacrifice that would atone for sin is not something that would be part of her typical worldview. Right? It would be one of making merit, tamboon, right? So, so for her to hear this, this is new information. This is stuff that for her was quite probably overwhelming, and I'm sure she thought, in, in addition to being stuck with all these foreigners, she got stuck with crazy people. <laughs> it's like, what, what is this strange story, right? Uh, but we got kind of towards the end, and, and uh, interestingly, she didn't check out. She, uh, she was thinking about this, and she asked, she asked this question, and she said, well, did Jesus do this on his own, or did they do it to him? good question, right? And here's a lady who's thinking about this, and she's trying to figure all this out, but it's all new, right? So I don't know if she, uh, you know, she understood it, if she made a profession last night of faith, if she believed it. But if she didn't, it's not the end of the world for her, right? We gave her one little preview, one little movie trailer. She may need to hear it ten more times before she thinks, you know, I want to see that movie. I want to buy a ticket. I want to know this Jesus, right? But Paul says it's different for the Israelites. They're not like that, right? So the burden we have for lost people is different in that we come with a message that they've never heard, and we come with the realization that we may need to tell it 50 times over, and we never give up hope, right, until we lay them in the ground. For them, there is hope, right? Uh, because they didn't, they didn't grow up with this heritage, now, if you're in this room this morning and you grew up in a Christian family and you grew up hearing the stories and it is part of your worldview and you know there's a creator God and you know that Jesus came, you know what it means for him to die on the cross and to make a sacrifice. Uh, 
be very careful about rejecting that message. Because you are much more like the Jews. If you have not put your faith in Christ and you have held that off and you've said, well, I don't know if it's really that big a deal, be very careful. Because Paul says, when you know that much about the story and you reject it, uh, you may not get a second chance, right? You may be rejecting God and His Spirit permanently, right? So we've got to be careful what we do with the truth God gives us, that we receive it and welcome it as truth from God, right? Um, this just kind of raises a ton of questions, and we're not going to answer them the next three chapters, Paul's going to answer these. But the real question then becomes, well, if Israel has rejected God and they have missed the gospel, then what's the future for them? Uh, because the Old Testament is full of a ton of promises about Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. Last year I got to go to Jerusalem, got to stand at the western wall of the temple. And while standing there, you know, I couldn't help but thinking about uh, and, and, and the Jews there in, in Jerusalem have all the furnishings already built for a new temple. Did you know that? All the robes, all the, all the altars, all the gold, candlesticks, everything is built, ready to go. They are waiting. And the guy said, if we could do it, we would have a temple up and operating tomorrow. Okay, that's how ready they are. And you hear this and you go, what is the future for Israel? Right? What does the Bible say about Israel's future? Some people think that, you know, they, they missed their chance, and God cut them off, and Israel's done forever. And it's like that branch got whacked off, and the church got plugged in, and, and now it's just the church from here on out. Others say, well, no, um, you know, uh, it's going to be a mix. You know, the, Israel's going to come in and be a part of the church. A third option is that, well, no, Israel still has a future alongside the church. Well, we're going to look over the next three, uh, three or four weeks at, at, at what that looks like. But I want to I want to end with just a simple time of prayer, because uh, for us the bigger question is you know what is our heart for the lost right? Uh, there are a lot of babuas, a lot of Thai people out there who have never heard the gospel, who have never heard the story, who have no clue what it's all about. Do we really want to see them come to know Christ and hear the message? What I'd like to do is take just about four minutes. Uh, get in groups of two, three people, four people, and just say, God, I pray for the laborers. Uh, I pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his field to sow the seeds and reap the harvest of those who God is calling to himself. So as the worship band comes up, let's take just a few minutes and do that, and, uh, and then we'll worship some more. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.